0: Our podcast guest today is a retired psychologist he has worked with everything from troubled youth through to some of the most uh, high performing athletes that new zealand has seen both teams individuals super rugby campaigns olympic campaigns uh world-class athletes in uh, sports like bmx uh, kayaking the, the works. Today, David Galbraith shares with us a lot of the insights that he's learned. He gives us his moment of reflection when his daughter had headbutted a pane of glass and how that made him think about life going forward and how it was really a turning point for him. You're gonna understand how some of the learnings from leadership and sport are just so applicable to leadership in business. His insights are absolutely brilliant. I had a lot of fun doing this episode. I do warn you, this episode comes with a strong language warning. Uh, It's all in the right context, but if you are listening with uh, others, please be aware that there is a strong language warning on this one. Please welcome to the show, David Galbraith. David Galbraith, welcome along to this episode of the podcast. Fantastic to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I've been looking forward to this um, no. since I met you at Galesley, and I've been really looking forward to doing this
0: little podcast with you. Bad. Already, let's kick into a couple of fast facts for you. Yeah. Are you a breakfast or a dinner guy?
1: Both. I like my food. <laughs> 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 that, is
0: gr- that is a great. That is a great yeah. answer. I, I think yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I. I think I'm with you on that one. Brilliant. Yeah.
1: My f- my favourite breakfast would be. Um, I've got a very strong set of routines around my food and the breakfast is uh, full full cream oat porridge uh, which i cook on um High heat until it boils, then I let the latent heat take care of the rest of it. Uh, mixed nuts, frozen fruit, massive tablespoon of manu kore, eweriwa honey, mm-hmm. and then maybe some peaches or something on that as well. So it's like it's it's, it's very particular, very specific, yes. but yes. it's a treat, man. It's like 15 minutes where I just get to slow the, slow the heck down and have a cup of tea with that. And it's like if I don't get that, you act, I can actually tell the difference in my the way my day flows. So that's that. And then the evening, oh, I'm a hunter-gatherer, so if we can have a bit of wild pork and a good apple sauce and some gravy, mashed bud. maybe with some fresh bread out of the um, bread maker like that that is the that is a wicked day right there oh, so yeah okay. but both yeah both. okay
0: and uh, all, all i'm looking for now is a uh an invite to either breakfast or dinner yeah yeah you know, totally sound, sounds good totally and and is the porridge is it, is it summer and winter is it all year round yeah absolutely yep,
1: that's yeah the... if i uh, yeah if i could and if i sometimes i have i've had porridge three times a day wow yeah yeah, yeah.
0: good staple Okay. Yeah, if, there's
1: no, if there's no wild food in the freezer, then I'll go porridge.
0: Good man. <laughs> All right, if you're on holiday, are we likely to find you bungee jumping or hanging out on the pool lander?
1: Or- oh, no, I hate sitting down doing nothing. So um I've never done a bungee jump, but I've done two skydives last year. And, and now I'm petrified again, like I was going to do my ticket. Like I've got a good oh, mate just- who's, she's just gone on and done her, well, I think they're up to about, she's up to about 250 jumps and she jumped yeah. through that. School in Auckland out of um, West Auckland. Um, so I was going to do my A license, it was going to cost me 6K. So I've had, with everything that's happening with COVID and the economy, I've had to go, oh, I'll just have to put that on hold. But I did a couple last year, one of a and one of a Mercer, and man, it was scary, Far, so scary. If anyone's, you know, have you done that, right? I have.
0: I have. Oh,
1: the first yeah. time, have you done? Uh,
0: I've done it twice, obviously, both tandems. Yeah, Uh, yeah. But yeah, amazing experience. Yeah,
1: totally. The first time, the first time going to the edge of the plane was just like, you know, and people who have done it know, it's hard to describe the feelings that are going on in that moment as you're looking out over the wheel, right? Wheel, whatever it's called. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so I'd be I'd be bungee, but I wouldn't be bungee. Yeah. Uh, but it would be something active and um, something mm-hmm. that's going to make me probably pee my pants.
0: Mm-hmm. I was pretty. uh I I feel cool, calm, and collected when I was doing my uh, first skydive. Yeah. Until the we shuffled to the edge of the plane. Yeah. I and mean, obviously, because you're in the front harness. Yeah. The instructor yeah, yeah. like shuffles. Uh, in my case, a, a guy his bum out to the uh, the yes. very edge of the door, and you're literally hanging outside the, <laughs> <laughs> the harness. Yeah. I think I think I lost my cool, calm, and collected. Um, uh, right,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I know exactly what you're what you're talking about because it's like,
0: whoo, whoo, here we go, here we go, yep. <laughs> and then the the rush of freefall with all that's oh. really noisy with all the wind, yeah. and then yeah. and then just the complete uh, almost opposite when you pull the shoot, and it's all very tranquil and just floating down i found the contrast of those two experiences yes. was really cool as well yeah yeah outstanding Great. oh good nice. man yep. good uh now david you're a uh, author yourself so when you're reading a book do you like to feel the paper or are you an electronic kind of guy yeah
1: def- definitely um old school I like to feel the paper yep, the
0: paper um, awesome. yeah
1: yep. okay so i take so i take the covers on the old ones and keep going
0: yeah good man cats or dogs dogs yeah uh, If a farmer farmer had to see cats, I would. uh, You're you're a pretend farmer. Yeah, yeah.
1: you're not a farmer.
0: (laughs) Okay, early riser or a night owl?
1: Um, I can do both if I have to, but more, more predominantly early riser.
0: Okay, and if you're watching a movie, would you be uh, choosing a thriller or a comedy?
1: Uh, Sometimes a comedy, I'm not smart enough to get it, so I end up (laughs) feeling dumb. <laughs> so I, I, I actually i really enjoy terminator that's probably my favorite okay and so i'd go action
0: okay okay i'm really i'm really concerned now did you watch dumb and dumber and not get it <laughs> i don't
1: know i can't
0: remember Classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, yeah. Alrighty, david you are uh, do we now i think we refer to you now as a retired psychologist is that correct yes Yep, you have uh, ended ended your reign, but you're still obviously doing a lot of mental performance work with with people, and you've been known to be called the Hog Man, uh, H-O-G, aka Habit of Greatness. How How did that title kind of come about?
1: Well, what, what I committed to really early on was not to try and base my work around what I'd read um, because I, I, I'd i really struggled to read and my intellect is quite a slow processor. So I actually committed myself early to be authentic and create my own framework. And then essentially through understanding myself, understanding others and understanding the space between others through the connectivity, I ended up building a framework, which is in the book. And then part of the framework was looking at where we, we validate our identity or have integrity and integrity is through our action. And then it was the repeated actions, which at that point, I was talking about habits. I talk about rituals as well. At that time, I was talking about habits. And because the the book's called Unleashing Greatness, I thought, well, habits of greatness. And that's where that happened. And then I was working with the chiefs at that stage. And obviously, young rugby men love to take the piss out of anything they can. And they love a laugh. So then they started referring to me as the hog man. And then the number of times I probably ended up with some sort of pig foot or pig head or something on the back of my ute. So that was where I ended up being the hog man. And it just stuck from there. And then a lot of athletes from that point and people just... Who knew me in that space, that yes. was how they started referring me to. So that was that's where that came from.
0: Right. Yeah. And the term courage has been a, a central pillar to, to a yes. lot of the work that you've done. Uh, yep. give us give us your definition of courage and why you think it's so so important.
1: I guess my definition of courage would be to be able to do something you've done before in a new context. So it's more it's more about that space of extension. So I just talk about that space in between knowing what we can and knowing what i suppose stepping into the unknown usually for me courage is in a relationship with fear and doubt like people ask do you have to have courage for everything and i I don't believe you do you can have action without courage. But the key bit for me is if we're thinking about self development and we think about performance, we're always talking about the space of the unknown. So maybe the, the definition of different definition of courage for me would be to step willingly into the unknown, um despite whatever feelings we have in that moment. Um, because they may not actually they may still be feeling petrified. Like the, when you and I hopped out of that plane for the first time, sure we had courage, but that wasn't but it wasn't my sense in that moment. I was petrified. And it wasn't feeling like I was like, yeah, this is wicked. I was like, oh. <gasps> holy hell. So the fear can really be very very strong and it may even feel like you have no courage at all but a deep intent to act despite that so i like to think about the courage as being maybe that's it's an it is an intent to act into a space of the unknown willingly um, and with intention and that that's how i'd look at it yeah so it's never a lot of people go what's the difference between stupidity and courage and i go what's a plan really you know if you haven't got a plan and you're acting in that space you're possibly going to die that day so that for me is it's 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 not stupid it's not impulsive Um, it's considered it's planned it's prepped you've done your work you've got ready for that space you still feel those feelings and then you're willingly stepping into that space with an intention to probably more than anything seek mastery so it's probably for me it's courage and mastery really closely related versus outcome focus uh often outcome focus seems more i've just noticed that outcome as a as a concept seems to be more for people that are fixated on outcome they seem to show me more tendencies of obsessive compulsiveness where the importance and the desperation for outcome becomes all encompassing and and, and and has a significant impact on their daily functioning, like it's crazy how that goes to, versus someone that sits in a space of mastery, which is more, it seems more enduring, it seems more resilient, it seems to be a pathway of uh, more zen, there's yes. much more peace in that space. Yes. And I often see courage and mastery going very nicely together. And I see stupidity and panic and impulsiveness sitting with obsessiveness more. So that's probably how I'd, talk about those mm. talk about courage and give it a bit yeah. of a contrast
0: as you uh talk about those something comes to mind for me i um did ironman a couple of times and i was really interested when i saw athletes you know weekend warriors you know yeah they, sort of doing doing ironman and you know to step up onto the start line was pretty courageous to start with because you knew how much work yeah. people had, had to do uh beforehand.
1: yes absolutely
0: but conversely at the at the other end i'd see people that had just completed something that you know, literally only thirty years ago was considered impossible. Uh, but they'd missed their goal time, and mm. it just ruined the whole experience. They were, there was no yes. reflection of uh, you know some element of mastery, what they'd done, that they'd done this really cool cool thing. They were going, oh, "I missed my split time or my goal time by two minutes, and now I'm, I'm just really pissed off about the whole experience." And yes. I think if if the only thing you've got in your mind is that the outcome. And no sense of the, the steps on the way through and, and what you're achieving, uh, you can set yourself up for some pretty hard times.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, 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 and just one more step on that one, Ryan, for me is if they're also parents, inadvertently they're modelling a framework to their kids which is going to be very problematic for them as teenagers and as a young adulthood, and that that, that's what I think a lot of people don't really get is the power of the modelling through parenthood Yes. and many many parents I'm challenging in, in parent based talks how many of them are doing something new where they're a novice and so you're so right you hit it on the nail there and most of these most of the people our age are doing their first IMs have kids so their kids have seen them train their kids have seen them um, go through that process or, and then they hear them talk about it afterwards and I'm not sure many in that space recognise the impact they're having on their kids and that's yes. you know th- through that process by mm. just by their you know their modelling yeah, mm. so really good point. Mm. And if they can think about if one's listening and they've got kids, then that's, you know, children learn from 75% of what we do and only 25% of what we say. So powerful and profound yeah, messages very, we're sending our kids throughout our own behavior.
0: And I think that same thing evolves out with all of our relationships, right? So yes, it's yes, very obvious. a child, But equally in a, a a manager and team member, you know, those absolutely.
1: Of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well. Yep. I think you know, and that's it. Oh, that's an ex- excellent extension. I'm um, thank you for making it because I think you're right. Because probably many of these people that we're listening to us today will be business people, and then the same process occurs within an organisation or with a team based on leadership. So within a, within a rugby team, because uh, I was in that space for such a long time, I got to see so many contrasting leadership styles, and the one defining variable across that that led to spontaneous free expression of self under pressure in the key moments, let's say semi final against Crusaders or whatever it might have been, was a leader that in that moment themselves was on a journey of mastery and a deep passion for that journey and of course they were competitive and they loved winning but their 90 percent of their language and nine percent of their reflections and 90 percent of their discussions and preparation to perform were always about the mastery concept and it was profound because they were more likely to say to the players in the last huddle before they ran out for it in those key moments playoff moments and they will say things like men the universe will take care of whether we win or lose tonight just relax. Let's see how deep we can go down the rabbit hole. And then this, you know, that's just a paraphrase of what they were actually yes, saying. Yes. And they're, they're saying, let's see how deep we can go into this dark space of combat. Let's go to the Coliseum and actually and men. Mm -hmm. And then that's where, so I'm goosebumpy now even in that space. Now, if a leader, woman or man can understand that framework, when they come to a meeting, when they come to plan for a project, when they come to review a project, what they're going to be freeing up in that space is an absolute sense of authenticity and permission for them to be themselves and bring that to the table. And then you're going to get the magic. But if you haven't got that in you the other way, which is you're obsessed with outcome, performance, status, reputation, you're going to bring control to the table. And then people are going to be um, unconsciously unwilling to step into the dark. And so that, it's just such a powerful connection into the business space from the sports space. It's the same thing. Sure it's is. a great, yeah, great connection, Ryan.
0: Mm. Okay. Uh, I've, I've read one of your uh, excellent blogs, David, which is available on your um, website. And it was the one titled, A Dad, a Toddler in a Smash Window. Oh yeah, <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> it uh, it really it really resonated with me just the that moment in time when you you stopped and thought about what was important. But would yeah. you we to just give the uh, give the audience a bit of context around that story. How did how it played out?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, thank you for reminding because I reminded me of that. Because man, it was. It was a defining moment and that that daughter is now 17 and we laugh about that. So what it was is when my wife had our first child, she wanted to go back to work pretty quickly. And so I ended up being a home dad and reduced my work so I could do that. Uh, And then on one particular day, at that point, um, and so good for listeners to understand, like I was in my 20s, I was a pretty mixed up cat. I had uh, lots of mental health stuff going on. Um, and then in my early 30s that was still that was still there. so I can talk to obsessive compulsive with a lot of personal uh, <laughs> connection
0: experience and,
1: yes. yeah yeah so at that time the lawns around our house were like, like a tablecloth, they were like mint. The house was every day had to be spotless. Just that—that's the—that's a the picture. That's the sort of father I was being, and I was parenting in the same way. And so, you know, for example, for me to go to bed feeling happy as a dad, my children—or that—that well, case only one. She had to do everything that I uh, so absolute discipline, absolute um, obedience, and um, behave like I did, even though she's only like coming to rising in two-year-old. I wanted to behave like me. Sure. And especially in public, because I was profoundly aware of what people were thinking of my child's behavior as a reflection of me as a parent. So that was, that was dominating my parenting. So this particular moment, I was washing the dishes, trying to get the house sorted before my wife came home and I was under the pump. Eh? And then my dad was coming up from Hawke's Bay and he's quite a, he's an, he's, he's a perfectionist or an, an, an imperfectionist. And so I knew that he was going to look at the lawns and go, Oh, you need a spray or something. And then my daughter comes in bawling her eyes out and I'm just thinking this is not the time for tears sweetheart Mm -hmm. so I turned around I told her the same thing didn't tell her that nicely probably and then because I think what I saw in that moment is I was probably still parenting and I was parenting a little bit like I'd learned from my dad about he was a traditional uh, conservative Hawke's Bay farmer manager you know old school parent um so i was bringing old school techniques to try to raise girls and anyway so she turns around and toddling you know like until you're rising two-year-old you're probably like 55 centimeters tall she starts toddling back to the falling and tantruming off the back of that and then toddles up to the glass window at an old farmhouse and so the eight little planes of glass and the door between the kitchen and the foyer and just toddles up to the glass windows and headbutted and smashed the bottom plane with her head now like, it's only like that far off the ground. So that's how little she was. When you look at it True. now, you're thinking, how the heck did <laughs> she get down there to yeah. do that? <laughs> I like, know. Um, so anyway, and it was in that moment that I stopped doing the dishes, picked her up and gave her a cuddle like I should have done in the first place. Now, that was such a p- profound, defining moment because I remember standing there holding this kid cry and thankfully she wasn't bleeding. The glass was all over the floor. And I thought to myself, I've always wondered why I became a clinical psychologist because I grew up on a farm playing rugby. How does that path end up in yeah. clinical psychology working in Auckland with sex offenders and working with the police in and SIFS and Hamilton yeah. with a child abuse team? It's like beyond me. And then I'm standing holding this kit, and I went, ah, oh, so this is why. Because then I just went, you know, it was almost like that little, if anyone's seen Ratatouille, there's a moment where the critique eats the Ratatouille and he has that moment of just boom, 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 everything sequencing together. I had one of those epiphany moments and I went, the reason that she did that and I went like that to myself was mm-hmm. because of you, asshole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because if you imagine what my daughter, what i conceptualized what had happened is my parenting style of her had been for me to go to bed feeling happy. She had to be absolutely perfect. And my wife had to be absolutely perfect. And everyone around me had to be absolutely perfect. And I had to be absolutely perfect. And the house and everything had to be absolutely perfect. And so what she showed me in that one moment is that just blew her apart psychologically. She didn't laugh. She wasn't very expressive as a kid. She was very um, standoffish. Mm-hmm. And, and what I saw now has been just a generalized anxiety issue. And then it was that one moment where I thought, okay, so if, for me to go to bed feeling happy, which is really just happy our success rules. So I had success equals complete obedience, do as you're told, listen first time, perfection in the house. And that was giving me this little girl expressing like that at two. I I could see that what would that look like, and this is why I, at that moment of realizing and with much gratitude or thanks that I've become a psychologist because my bread and butter was child, children and families and human development. So I could go, I know that's a two, but I know where that will be at 10 and I know where it will be at 18 and 28. Sure. And I went, so if those equations have given me that behavior there, I know what they were going to give me by 10, which would be a very well-behaved, very anxious young little girl who was struggling in many ways um, privately because of socially, exp- publicly it's more likely she'd be a very well-behaved kid. Yes. But by 14 or 15, she will be a wreck. And I've seen that through people bringing their young people to me to get help as a site earlier. you have seen that come through with boys as well. Different types of behavior presentation, but same issue. So I went, okay, so if that's happened because of that, all I'm going to do is 180 degrees and reverse it. So I went, for me to go to bed feeling happy, and I forced myself to have to almost like a whole different um, cardio training program as you've actually got to go through the, through the discomfort of doing something new, that cold turkey, I went, for me to go to bed feeling happy, she has to be disobedient, not listen to dad. For us to have ice cream for breakfast, the only thing in the house I wanted to be have tidy was the kitchen and the toilet, because that's health. And I thought the rest of it can go to hell. I'd stopped mowing the lawns. I bought a goat so we could get ready for the first pet day. And we had goats. We, they, we had a goat, two goats and a sheep at one stage mowing our lawns for us. And the neighbors were like, what the hell? And then ironically, if I hadn't, you know, for me, that, that one moment, I reckon has led to every single thing that we're talking about now in relation to the book and everything else. That was a key moment. And now that girl is seventeen, she's a young woman now, and she still comes to find me at night. You know, I guess there's a you know, bean boys on the scene, so not every night, so (laughs) bloody and but she'll come and find me to lean a little bit forward so I can just kiss her forehead and that's Mm -hmm. part of her routine for going to bed. And so Mm -hmm. I just think by changing that algorithm or that equation, it reversed everything to a point where that thing that she used to smash the window, she now feels comfortable to go to bed only after dad's given a little kiss good night. And so that's that's where that story was and that's where it's led to in regards to everything that's flowed off that in high performance sport. Ironically came from that moment where that little girl smashed the window and gave me the biggest kick up the ass I needed. Sure. So if we,
0: again, bring that to a to a business context of going, yeah. you know, I'm the senior leader in a business, I've got the CEO who I feel like's got very high expectations of what I need to deliver, I've got yeah. a lot on my plate, I'm trying to get everything done perfectly, and I get one of my team members walk in the door and they're, uh, you know, looking for time or looking for input from me, and my initial response is... Oh my God! I don't have time for you right now. I've, I've yes. got my own stuff I need to get done. I've got pressure from the CEO. He's getting pressure from he or she's getting pressure from the board. Uh, it's it's all just a bit much for me. How could I be thinking differently in that moment? Or what 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 tools might I be able to deploy to get some perspective?
1: Yeah, really good question. For me, it's making sure that they've done their work and understanding who they are and their perspective base or their maybe their principles, or their philosophies that govern their behaviour. So if they've done some work on that, so let's say one of their principles is care before performance. Like ironically, care leads to performance. I see them yes, as the same yes, things. but for just yes. people to help get their head around it, care is the primary value. Care before anything else could be the principle that falls off that value that they then use to follow with regards to behaviour regulation. That moment, they should have prepped for and been ready for and have been doing their own leadership develop mentoring around how they support people in those moments and be ready for it. So when someone comes in they should just quietly put phone on mute, pause that, turn around, close the door, um, sit down and then engage in a compassionate conversation. so that I think that's the key is if they've done that work, they set up that framework, then that for them will resonate in their mind as being a critical moment for living the culture that they have been wanting to be guardian of as a leader. And and so that that that's probably quite as a simple way. That's how yes. I'd look at it. Yeah, I
0: like it. Yeah, I like it a lot. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you've you've just worked with such a phenomenal number of athletes. who have been involved in, you know, professional sports and a lot of different uh, arenas. Mm. You've worked with Olympic athletes. You've worked with, you know, as you were saying earlier, you've worked with challenged uh, family and youth via the mm. police and support support mm. systems. Um, can, you, can you just take us on a couple of uh, story journeys with people that when you think back about those people that you have um, helped or, um, and I'm not necessarily looking for the hero story of I got the Chiefs to win the Super Rugby title, but what was what was some breakthrough moments you maybe saw with people on the way through where through giving them different perspectives and, and different tools, mm. you, could, you saw them grow as individuals and become better people or better leaders in their context.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's just made me a whole kaleidoscope of memories. And, yeah, I, sure. and, and 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 especially the Chiefs one too, like I just want to say it in that space, I've been very lucky to be in systems where there's been amazing coaches. So those teams, I'm convinced, would have performed just as well with or without me there, um, or another psychologist in that space because of the frameworks that were set up and established, you know, like Dave Rennie, Wayne Smith, Tom Coventry, Andrew That all of those guys could be, and they are, top level international coaches. They are that, they are the top of the shelf. I was fortunate enough to be under the shadow of a very powerful people coaches. But I just wonder
0: with, with, you know, Dave or as an example, Mm. what were your observations for him around leadership that, that made him like, I'm sure he's got phenomenal technical skill as an understanding of the game, but as a a leader, what stood out for you in observing him?
1: Um, It would be care, like a genuine care. And, and, you know, the connection from the work earlier in my career and, the places I was talking about, I have a one really vivid memory because you'd often have to do home visits to some pretty shady places. There was one time I was supporting, you know, another young fellow who was a youth worker, and I would point it to probably one of the most at-risk youth in our area. I remember vividly a day where I went to meet his dad, and his dad was pretty loose. And i was walking up the, up the driveway, and he comes out, and he must have had a bad day. And he, he basically said to me you can fuck off, you fucking white piece of shit or whatever it was or something like that. And I remember saying to him, oh, I'm happy to fuck off, but just tell me when I can fuck back again. Because <laughs> 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 clearly you haven't had a good day, bro, or something. I can't remember what it was. And then he just looked at me and was like, what? And I said, well, I've got a dilemma. You want me to fuck off, but I actually am here because I care for your son. And, and by by that means I care for the family. So how the hell am I going to care for you if you tell me to fuck off? <laughs> and it was like it's at that point that's what highlighted for me where care sits because what he got in that moment was a reflection of yeah yeah, yeah let's just put all that stuff aside how are we going to do the care bit just let me know when we can do the care bit because I knew he cared for his his boy and so that that would be the key thing there that even in that moment of and care usually sits underneath the, it is it is, the, it is the most powerful intervention we can use anywhere you know the words thank you the word please and the word care and love as a philosophy are the most powerful things. And it's not a manipulation. When it's genuine, it's like, you know, that for me is just the most powerful thing. And then if we let track that on to Dave Rennie, then it's the same message. It's the same metaphor is that there's helping people. And what he got is it wasn't that he used care to manipulate to get performance. He used care to care. And so his care of the men was absolute it didn't matter whether you're 38th on the roster or first on the roster didn't matter if you're in the leadership group or you're in the rookie in your rookie year he would stop anything and everything to to have a phone call or go and talk to a fellow who was distressed that's the middle of the night for him care was his vision and his reason for being a coach was about people it wasn't about performance everything else off the back of that is top shelf too so you've got other layers on that but that comes later but the first layer would be care. And that is a repeating theme I've seen across all codes. Systems that are facilitated by a leader, a coach, um, or even within the organization if it's a CEO, if they have their primary value as being care and people, then everything else flows off that. And how that influences it, it influences everything from what videos are shown first on a Monday morning as the first part of the performance review. It influences the first thing that's said in the coaches' meeting. It influences the first thing that the leadership group have on their agenda. So it becomes profound in that way. And then that's where all the layers are. And, and I, I vividly remember the last round robin game, 215 or 216, I think it was against the Highlanders. And we, if we'd won that, we would have had a home quarter final. And that, that's the key in all playoffs is to be at home. So it was a critical game. And that week, we did some public tree planting. And I was in charge of the logistics of it. And the people that had donated the mulch had said they'd have a little digger there for us because we had like, I don't know, maybe fifteen tonne of mulch. It was massive amount of of
0: mulch. <laughs> more, than, more than a couple of wheelbarrows.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got to the site and Renz comes up to me and goes, uh, DG, so yeah, Renz. He said, Where's the where's the um where's the digger? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. And I was thinking, I oh, can't doesn't look like it's here, Renz. <laughs> <laughs> I said we've got plenty of wheelbarrows and shovels though So essentially we got into the work The men were wicked They were oh. top shelf they, they, they just went hard Basically six to eight hours They were hard on We had 30 shovels and 10 wheelbarrows And they just tag teamed it all And the, everyone was involved And um, great, it was, that was midweek But he took the afternoon off the grass Preparing for this massive moment Performance wise For us to go and set up these uh, these fruit gardens For the community That would be five years time generating fruit for kids and for him it was a no-brainer cancelled all afternoon on the grass you know you think about that on that sort of how big that game was and the boys went down to Dunedin and lost
0: (laughs) because of the blisters on their hands and one lat was was completely wrecked from all the shoveling yeah
1: that's right and then that became the running joke from the coaching group to me is that's why you'd never have community before performance Uh, but oh, Ren's was a laugh. We obviously we laughed about it, but we didn't. you know we cared, but we didn't care. You know, because we didn't really lose. Because the boys had worked that hard in the afternoon. We'd lost one afternoon on the grass. There was other stuff going on, and we lost that game. And Holland yes. played well. So I think that probably that story and that value are a key, um, a key part of anyone who's listening to understand it. A lot of people will have words that they might have on the wall that they say reflect who they are as an organisation or a team. But it's not until we get to those critical moments that we see really what the words are. And, you know, COVID's been like a, someone said that they are, COVID's like a microscope. And I went, yeah, I get it. I said, but it's it's more than that. The COVID crisis and the global pandemic has been like a MRI scan because the microscope only shows us what's on the outside, which just yes. shows us the values on yes. the wall. Yes. But the MRI scan gets right inside us mm. and it shows us who we really are in that moment. And so people, if they've been doing reflections mm. over the COVID crisis, they will have found out and seen who they really are as a person on this, even on the continuum of courage to fear, you know, um, whether we spend more time in anxiety and have been unsettled and worried about catastrophe versus embracing the moment and stepping into the unknown to learn. So that, that key moment highlighted for me where this head coach genuinely sat at an unconscious space in their genetic, uh, I guess their social genetics about how they, and what they saw as being the most important thing for a, for a family and a group of people, and for himself, for his own integrity. And so I put care as being that number one value. And then the sense of that is the courage to actually live to that in the moment when everything's on the line, like his career, his reputation, his future, everything's on the line. And then that's why I guess for organizations, that, that extension, um, this, there's a couple of companies I love, that, they, that the care of people becomes their, prof- their their most profound energy. And I've seen that in a number of companies where they're led well, the the leaders are people first and they understand the dynamics of people first will give you performance. And that's special when you see that happening and that's where I put Rennie. Rennie is, Dave, Dave, Rennie is, yeah, he's a he's class, class human.
0: Yep. Nice. So we've got uh, the word care I love and this care, care for people. Mm. Uh, one of the things that uh, stood out when you presented to one of our um, member groups earlier was um, actually about caring less and the uh. the context was caring less, <laughs> by, caring less about what others others think yes right yes. so uh i i totally understand i'm sure the audience does get the the value of caring deeply for people uh, yes. as the people first and yeah you know, in our context we put that in the, uh priority goes health family and work and your health mm. you know, as an individual mm. is about your physical and your mental wealth and then you've got to have your Family, not only your immediate, but your friends and your your network needs to be in a good shape, and then you can come to work and deliver a good performance. Mm. So Eli, mm. I love that that care. But what mm. about this this uh sense that we maybe just spend a bit too much time worrying about what others think about us?
1: Yeah, yeah, It's a. <laughs> you could. You, I'm not sure if you still got the photo of that little boy floating around the balloons.
0: I have. I have. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, We'll, you we'll could put post that, that. We'll put that in the uh, in the show notes, so uh, people yeah, get yeah the totally. of totally, um,
1: totally, yeah.
0: It's and maybe be if you, if you it's describe it. A pre
1: a... picture, <laughs> yeah. I'm um, just trying to think where to start that one, Ryan. Let, let me let me of... let me
0: paint a paint literally paint a picture of the uh, picture we're referring to. So for the people okay. that are listening on audio, there's yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a little image and there's uh, five kids standing on the ground, and then there's a little boy that's lifted off the ground. He's holding on to a whole lot of uh, helium balloons, and the words on the image say everyone just wants to be liked and accepted and then next to the little boy who's being lifted by the balloons it says except for tim and tim is popping the middle finger and it says tim doesn't give a fuck So we'll post <laughs> the image so people can see it, but um, I really, uh, it stood it's out to me, this concept of... Um, yeah,
1: it's a great, great image. About, now, that image comes from Mark Manson, who went on to write the book, The Subtle Art Not Giving a Fuck. So that's mm-hmm. where that, that image comes from. Right. And I saw that image five years before he wrote the book. He had a site and he posted a little article that somehow ended away into my box, and I had a quick read of it. And I saw that cartoon. I didn't need to read anything else because it said so much. In essence, for me, when I put an interpretation to that picture, because a lot of people think it's a little bit antisocial, but the layer I want to bring into people when they look at that to interpret it is it's what I see Tim doing is he's actually saying to society, because the five little people in the corner represent society at large and the, the strongest paradigm that exists within that space, which is about fitting in at all costs. Um, even if you lose yourself, still do that to fit in. So I see Tim floating away, and what he's doing is he's giving the bird to society to say, I refuse to wear your masks. I refuse to wear your masks and I'm committed and invested in me being me. So for me about the caring less is getting, and and Mark Manson's, his framework is, I think he says, make sure you get clear on the fucks you're going to give because you've got a limited number of fucks. You better make sure you only care about, give a fuck about the right things. (laughs) And so I love that, but I can't use the word fuck everywhere I go and talk at school. So <laughs> the key thing is what I say is just get really clear about what you're going to care about and not care about. And so the bit for me in there is I want people, um, and this is where it starts to link on, when he says I'm not going to wear the mask or she says I'm not going to wear the masks, I'm going to be myself. Now, this is with athletes, and this is where the link to athletes and organizations is really profound and very fast. Because what little Timmy is committing to has being himself. Now that. Is the biggest challenge in the world to actually put down all of the uh, masks that we wear to fit in all of the unconscious and conscious motivations to ascribe or follow uh i guess social rules is the hardest challenge of all and so when we think about that as a concept if i was supporting someone and then just even talk about a rugby team or supporting an athlete our primary goal then becomes well if, it, if you're going to express who you are that means essentially that you are committing to be weird, because there's only one of you. And I heard a lovely stat the other day that the prob- the chance of being born someone had just looked at ancestry and history and then figured out what the probability would be of you being conceived and born based on all of those variables that existed, and it was one to four billion. And when they said that uh, stat, I said, you not know that stat saying?" They went, "Yeah, that's pretty big. Um, you know, that's pretty amazing." I went, "That's actually saying that magic happens." Mm-hmm. Because that is such a big, whatever it's called, is, it's a miracle
0: yeah.
1: and magic. So I, so I then work with people going, okay, so if you're going to express that person, one in four billion, it's going to be a very unusual person. So there's a commitment to be weird. And then the samurai have a lovely term, which I read in the book, Bushido, The Way of the Warrior, The Secret Wisdoms of Samurai, I think it was called. It was the diaries of one of the greatest samurai transcribed by a Kiwi guy who had gone to Japan to learn about the samurai. And the word was katsumono, K-A-S-U-M-O-N-O. And its literal translation is quintessential weirdo. And for me, that is such a beautiful concept because you can't call yourself katsumono. It was bestowed upon you by others who saw you operate um, as a reflection of deep uh, mana or deep pride or deep respect of you and the way that you lived your values. So pure values of service and sacrifice and community or family versus self um, over self. And also they were very deadly. So you combine the performance with the person and then we've got an athlete. We can talk about that as an athlete or business as well. Mm -hmm. And so the person who stood out in that way would be like a Richie McCaw, I guess, or Kevin Alamo, if I've heard both those two guys from what I've heard about them in rugby sort of fit that picture. They would be Katsumonu that then becomes our focus is okay so if we're going to be timmy what we're actually committing to is being ourselves but then recognizing what that actually means because we are committing to being like nobody else now that's where your courage sits in there because you've got to have massive courage to step outside that social group because that's a powerful energy that holds us in that's where courage comes to actually have that thought that you're going to be yourself and then to put in things in place to train you being yourself and so we care less about what people think we care more about what we think about ourselves, um, but that then requires we've got a framework and a foundation of identity about ourselves to actually anchor us in the moment. Because you just can't go, I'm going to think less about what people think. You've actually got to have an anchor that holds you in that gravitational pull to be pulled back into the middle yes. of the bell distribution curve. And so that anchor is our ancestry and our history. And a good example of that is parents often email me and just say, would you catch up with my daughter or my son They're have been to sport and they want to do this. And one email was, my son's really struggling with motivation. Um, I think he's depressed. Can you catch up with him? And I went, yeah, absolutely. And then when he came in and sat down, I said, mate, before we get started, because we'll talk about what you want to talk about shortly, but I'm really curious about your surname. And he's like, what? I said, I haven't seen that surname before because I think surname is so important with history. You know, like I'm just, as soon as I see him, I'm thinking, I wonder where that link And I said, I said, I think you're Scandinavian. And he was like, what? I said, I think you're Scandinavian. And he said, but if I am, even if I am, why is that important? And I said, mate, it is so important because I think you could be Viking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's just like, well, who is this guy? You know, mm-hmm. He's come to talk to me about his depression. And I'm straight away talking to him about being a Viking. Anyway, long story short, when I saw him two weeks later, he'd had some homework to go and do. He came back in as a different young man. It was just a different energy about him. And I said, it looks like you've done your homework, lad. And he goes, yeah, yeah, both mum and dad's side. when I tracked them back we we're, we're, we are Viking families and I'm goosebumping now thinking about yeah, it because you yeah. see how now he's got an anchor that holds him in his own identity rather than trying to belong to a social identity that automatically makes him more um, free in the space of accessing the universal energies that are there for creativity and performance and being part of a team and bringing all those little magic bits to it. So that, just goes off that little bit, the, I said to him, this is a laugh, I said, I hope you read up about the uh, marital ceremonies, I said, because the Vikings had quite an interesting marital ceremony and he said, no, I haven't. I said, well, you better go and do that because I expect you go to your wedding with a full Viking helmet with horns. <laughs> and then what the Vikings used to do is the bride would bring the family sword to give to the groom as a, a reflection of his commitment now to protect her with his life, then he would give her their family, one of their family swords, for her to put away for their firstborn son. So, it? All, all of these beautiful rituals. And then, when they go into the little hut to have the reception, the first thing the new husband has to do is take the sword that she gave him and actually throw it into the ceiling as a, as a, um, to see how deep the sword goes in the roof as a marker of whether the marriage was going to be um, robust and resilient and last or not. Uh-oh. Yeah, and I said to him, so that means you've, A, you got to go and get your sword sorted, but then you better get practicing because it would be a hell of a bad omen to kill your wife because the sword bounces out of the ceiling. Exactly,
0: exactly. (laughs) It would not be a good start.
1: Yeah, so you can see how how that, that element of identity is the primary thing we will care most about. Just a long story short in that space, the work that's done in that space is thorough and it's deep, it's meaningful, and it usually means that the people I'm supporting will go back and visit spaces, for example, where... The the ship from the Clyde River in Scotland anchored in Littleton Harbour on the 1852. Mm -hmm. And they'll track how the heck did my great 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 grandmother get from Littleton to the Mm Wairappa or Kafia or whatever. Because in those stories are narratives and themes that, not all of them, but some of them will resonate with the person in the here and now. And then that for me, that's the social genetics, that's the actual. You know, I guess the carbon atoms bouncing through that time to now be in them that represent the deeper spirit of the lineage. Then those stories and those values actually then become the basis of their values today. So a lot of people start by doing a values-based exercise, which is in the here, and now what are the two or three things that are important to you? And they can still find them, but they're never as deep or as meaningful as tracking them from the bottom up. And then now we've got the anchor We care about those things. Each value, let's say one is a a community-based charity sacrifice. Let's say there's Samurai in the history, then that's about service. So if one of their values that they still resonate with today is service, the challenge of integrity is that their projects that they are operating in the here and now actually give that integrity. So there's a service project, there's an adventurer project. And then that's where we really have some real substance for somebody because now they care about those three hours that are on their weekly schedule to go and work in the church, to work in the community, to plant the gardens, to whatever, no no matter what. Now that becomes a place of self-deeper resilience because now the no matter what is, so over crisis comes, they get a bad comment on their Facebook from someone at school who doesn't like them very much. You know, all of these things just keep coming at us down the path of life. If we have that anchor, there's no unknowns inside us. So we know who we are, that we can then step into the unknown in the world. And then that, that's where the caring about those things holds the magic, which is really everything that we wanted to achieve for an athlete going to Olympics or a sports team playing super rugby or whatever it is, because that's the foundation to, because under, under immense pressure, all of us are instinctive. We are unconscious and we operate out in an algorithm that's in the deep layers of our mind. So we're not thinking. Under pressure, we're not thinking, it's all just happening. We may pop out and think and then go back into the moment again. If that is deep, then in those moments of pressure, we basically play out the same let's say you're let's say you're a Douglas. Like if if you've got deep identity in Douglas, then when you get to a pressured moment in life, you actually play out the same algorithm that occurred because the Douglas family is connected to the William Wallace family, which was Um, Braveheart. So Stirling Bridge, 1297, the Douglas family and the Wallace family are very, very closely linked in that space. That means in that moment of pressure, the same things that held the family back in the 1297 will be here. And now we're operating at our full optimal potential under pressure. And ironically, we actually build a space then in our mind where we love that moment. And so there's the anchor of, in the end, if we care about those things and don't care about the other things, we can get to a place where we look at pressure, we look at adversity, we look at challenge as a massive opportunity to express our quintessential weirdness. And now you've got the magic. Because if you've got 12 of those people or 15 of those people, let's say there's a team in business of eight people, if they're all doing that, now you've got this, you know, amazing buzz happening within the space where they're all applying themselves to the project together. That organisation won't have any issues with re- retention.
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed. So as a, as a business leader, how how might we go about creating those anchors for the, for the team, you know, potentially where the uh, knowledge around the individual and their own anchors is not well explored? Uh, and and not well understood, how could we as leaders think about anchoring our teams and what we achieve in our our business life?
1: Yeah, great question. The first thing that we can do is that every organisation has its own history, and some organisations in New Zealand are generations old. So any organisation where I walk into the reception area, and they've got photos from 1862, plastered all over the wall of ox pulling logs or whatever it might be say it's just a trucking company that that's a first indication straight away that this company is about history and identity and gratitude and acknowledging those that have been before us and never getting bigger than the moment or bigger than the organization and deep humility because that's that says straight away the first photo you see is your forefathers and mothers that started that company you're automatically anchored in humility so what we have today is to regulate to that. So then that that's a way we can start to do it as an an organisational leader straight away is making sure that the organisational story, even if it's only two years old, is the first thing that people see. It's the first thing that we acknowledge and we talk about and we know that history. Someone coming induction should be about learning that story. It should be about learning that before we learn where the bloody toilets are and those sorts of things. It should be the most important thing. And we look at, you know, before we do a professional development plan. In addition to that, Everyone that comes into the organisation or into that team, they have their own story. So then there should be rituals of induction, which is also rituals of connection. So when someone comes in, we want we want to know as much about their story as we want to know about our story. And then there should be a place on the wall for them to put their fucker papa and their story. And then all of a sudden you've got because you know you go into families and there's often awards and ribbons and photos of being ducks and prefect and all of that, and they are important pieces of icing. But I always go in, well, if there's one wall about outcome, there should be four or five walls about the history. And so I just keep thinking about that framework. And so with an organisation, it can be the same. Within any books about the organisation, it can be the same. If we get a book when we go into an organisation and start, it should, be, it should be a photo album. It should be a photo album of the history of that, that organisation. And then that's where we start. Because then it's, a, it's about then people understanding that let's say we just take a photo each month or each year that reflects that work or that project that just gets attached to the wall and it all becomes part of the history. And now that's not, it's not a complicated thing to do. You know, like for me, I just see that good families understand that really deeply. A lot of multi-culture understand that really deeply. And so that's, I think something a leader can do, um, which will have a profound impact on how someone feels and sense of belonging and appreciation and significance and that they are actually seen, not just a, not just a, another employee number.
0: Yeah, just the resource to be uh, churned and burned. That's
1: right. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: I like it. Okay. Uh, which of your athletes are you most excited to be working with at the moment, and why?
1: Ooh. Oh, look, I, I can't give names because it's just how so, I roll. But I'm, I'm working. I'm really, I really get a lot of buzz out of working with a, there's a, 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 as a, a, let's just say, some mature lady who does bench press and she's in the Waikato and she inspires the hell out of me. Cause she obviously amateur, pays all her own way. And the COVID crisis sort of put a big block in her, her plans, but she'll travel around the world three or four times a year to big international events. Um, to compete in bench press, which means you go all that way and you know probably do like two or three lifts and then you're coming home again. Um, and she can pump out some numbers, given her age. And I'm just like, she approaches, like everything that you and I have talked about today, she approaches all of that stuff. And because she is, she's quintessentially weird, but that's that Olympic athlete. You know, if, if all the Olympic athletes are supported and vested like she does in what you and I are talking about, oh, that would be unbelievable because she is like top shelf. Yes and so she would be the one that gives me the greatest satisfaction and buzz because of no one knows who she is she gets only private pride from it it costs she, she, all of her money she earns each year her husband must be such a lovely man because it's all going out of the family funds. there's no
0: sponsorship no, sponsor no, money. For no endorsement they, deals
1: yeah so you know she loves what she does she lives what she does she loves it and it's absolutely pure so that would be an example of the one that I'm probably buzzing most about is because I reckon in the end, you'll probably see, she'll probably die doing a press somewhere around the world from <laughs> old age and she'll be the happiest corpse that's probably totally, ever been. Totally, yeah. yeah. She'll yeah. just be trapped under the bar yeah. and just be a massive smile as her heart gives in. She'll be like, finally, the final chapter.
0: <laughs> what do so I I'd go. say
1: that one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. totally.
0: Very, very good. Hey, David, it's been great to chat with you today. Tell us if people want to know more about you, the work you've done. Maybe read some of your insights. Where's the best place for people to find you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, a good mate and I have started to do a cup of tea hour every Monday night at 8 p.m. on Facebook Live. Um, and it's called Talking Performance, so people can go on to Facebook and just track down Jay Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R, um, and Talk in Talking Performance. Um, so he's the national golf coach for the Eisenhower team and the Esprianto team so he's one of the best coaches in the country in golf there's a few great ones out there he's one of them and he and I get together every Monday night I wanted to call it the cup of tea hour but he's gone no, no we're going to call it talking performance and i will oh, what about talking people and he said no we're going to talk in performance to help coaches link in so it's called talking performance and we, we yarn every Monday night um, we've had uh, Wayne Smith Crystal Coa and then last, or well, Monday, last week, uh, Laura Langman came on. So they're all oh, there mate. for people to go and watch. Yeah. Um, they're all recorded. They can just track it. Um, so that's probably the first and easiest space. They can go to my website if they want to, um, Habit of Greatness, which ties in with the hog thing, Habit of nz. Yeah, that's Perfect. probably the easiest way. And my number's on there, so they can link in easy.
0: Brilliant. And okay. would certainly love to endorse you, David, as a uh, speaker. We've been fortunate enough to use you with some of our community members. You did a fantastic job. So Work if out. anyone's looking for uh, someone to uh, light up and get the, get the brain cells churning at their next... Uh, um conference if we get back to those uh or the next event, you know, highly recommended, David. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Your insight's been brilliant. It's been a lot of fun too.
1: Thank you, Ryan. And I've really enjoyed talking with you and meeting you the other day. So thanks again. This has been another it's been this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Cheers. We're good.